1: <clears throat> You're listening to the Sandspants Network, home of comedy, <laughs> culture, <laughs>
0: adventures, and ghosts. Hey everyone, welcome to Bookish. I'm George to This the show we ask you, what's your story and what does it say about you? Today on the show we have Eva Rodriguez, who spent the last decade working with international agencies, government, research, industry and user groups, coordinating and leading the creation of collaborative and user-driven innovations leveraging space. Eva, how are you? I'm really good, thank you.
1: Great to be here.
0: <laughs> Great to have you on the show. I did say your name correctly. We didn't test if I could get your last name right. Rodriguez, did I say that right?
1: Rodriguez, but that's okay. Uh, okay. (laughs) Almost, almost. Rodriguez, Rodriguez. And I've got two, by the way, but that's all right. Because they're both the same.
0: All right, Uh, Rodriguez. I saw that, and I was wondering if that was a typo. So it's Rodriguez, Rodriguez.
1: No, it's not, and I've got a story for that because I am Spanish. So Spanish people have two surnames, and we get the first from our dad and the second from our mom. Although you can mix and match now. And my parents happen to have the first surname and they're not related because it's a very popular surname in Spain. (laughs) But uh, I've had people say that to me. In fact, as I was presenting my master thesis, my supervisor said, is that a typo? And I was like, no, you should know this by now. I've got two surnames. So yeah, but no worries. It's always a good story and people get to learn a little bit more about Spanish culture as well. So there you go.
0: Yeah, so it's a, um, I'm going to take a wild punt here instead of just asking you directly, but does that mean you're from the Catalan region when you've got the "th"? Is that or the opposite? I can't remember.
1: Well, it's the way you pronounce it in Spain across the border, really, but it's actually funny you say that because I was, yeah, I was born and raised in the Catalan region, but in the Catalan region, you speak another language, which is Catalan. So that's a yeah. whole lot of other stories. So Rodriguez is very, very Spanish as of the whole of Spain. Not a Catalan surname.
0: I oh, know. I meant like the th- the use of the th in the speaking. I thought that was Catalan language speaking thing, or is that just the whole of Spain as well?
1: Oh, it's the whole of Spain, but look, you know, we've got so many dialects and languages that I don't want to even go there on that conversation because we could start a war. Or so. The third of Rodriguez is very, very Spanish across the whole of Spain. Let's say, let's okay. leave it there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realize I was going to be stepping in it so early on into the <laughs> podcast. No,
1: no, no, no. We all that. We can leave it there. That's for another <laughs> podcast.
0: Okay, well, um, the other side uh, as well, I just want to clarify, you seem to be jumping around quite a lot in what you do, so I wanted to clarify if what my introduction then kind of got, was up to date or was it missing a bit of recent stuff?
1: No, that was great. That's pretty much what I've been doing in Europe and in Australia. I guess, yeah, I've done a fair bit of everything in a way, although it's always sort of had a, a path that made sense to me. So I started with telecommunications engineering and then that got me into the space sector downstream applications and we can talk a little bit more about that and what that means and then through that as it happens to a lot of people that studied engineering you end up doing lots of different things so project management and I started doing a fair bit of strategy work which is super interesting technical evaluation across a number of technologies innovation design thinking you start opening all those boxes and then you start getting a lot of different knowledge and. Across, And I think this is why the book we're going to talk about today is so relevant.
0: (laughs) Well, look, okay, that's, so we've got, you know what, let's do that. Let's start with the book and then we'll jump and tie in with you because I'd love to hear more about so much of that journey because it sounds really interesting. But like you said yourself, the book does tie in pretty, almost suspiciously well, but I won't go into that. So how about, so, (laughs) so your book of choice for today is?
1: It's called Range, How Generalists Triumph in a Specialized world and the author is David Epstein.
0: Hmm. Yeah so that's a non-fiction book and essentially I mean it's all summed up in the title really it's just about the idea that uh, from my understanding just a kind of a broad overview of the idea that in the modern era it's better to be across lots of different disciplines rather than to be hyper focused on a single discipline is that right?
1: Yeah that's right that's pretty much the book at its core But there's so much in it. And I had this book recommended to me by a range of people, pardon the pun. And look, I was sort of never really wanted to pick it up. And then one day I said, look, you know, give it a read. And it's just, I think it's almost like a study book because what he's done is he's gone with this idea that for the kind of world we live in, generalists are better equipped to solve the kinds of complex, wicked problems that we've got. And as I went through the book, Every chapter is full of aha moments and I love it because it goes against everything that you're taught about success, you know, that you have to specialize very early, pick a thing, don't deviate, go really deep and the deeper you go, the more you'll know and otherwise you're going to miss out. And yet this book is just the opposite and it's the opposite articulated in a way that it's actually providing examples of very successful artists and scientists and engineers and sports people and research backing it up so it's just so refreshing and yeah I think it's going to be a study book I mean if you could see it I've got my book full of every page is I've got like a little clip in every chapter so it looks ruined already but it's because I'm like oh I need to look into this later oh I need to look into this later so yeah there's a lot there (laughs)
0: I like how you're bringing, you're showing your like technical background with that kind of reading of the book. Right? Yeah. <laughs> it's just back in university. Just
1: I need to go deeper. And yet yeah, the book is about going wider, but I think that's the beauty of it, right? That you spread across a number of domains and then you gain an interest and then you can bring that to another discipline. So yeah, I think I'll be picking this book uh, a few times in the future.
0: Right. So now I did just have a quick glance out. I didn't have the time to read it closely, although it does sound something I'm really interested in. One of the things I would ask, though, is it kind of going to because I think a lot of people can hear something like this and like it because I don't know how to say this in the nicest way, but it's almost like an excuse to be lazy and like not committed because you're like oh i can do a bunch of stuff and it's actually i'm the smart one and i'm always very suspicious whenever i hear that like as in i don't know you always see a study every few years that's like people who don't sleep uh, who sleep late and <laughs> have messy houses are the smartest people and everyone's like yeah that's me and it's like is this just Appealing to people, like so. I guess to that, do you have a response to that in there? Because I'm, I kind of got to guess. But yeah, what would you say?
1: Yeah, well, I guess perhaps yes. Well, and I want to believe that I am not picking this book and liking it because of that. So I'm just going to remove <laughs> myself from that group. But look, the book talks a little bit about that in some of the chapters. There's a chapter that's really interesting that talks about grit, and there's been a lot around grit. There were some studies. And greed was like the coolest thing to have because greed allows you to succeed. You know, it was framed as, as the greatest predictor of success, etc. cetera. So the author does go in depth in, into these areas to say, well, this is not an excuse to be lazy. This is not an excuse not to persevere and to go through the pain of learning things and learn them properly. But it introduces the idea of much quality, which is about if you don't do the sampling you may be put into a box that's not your box. And you may decide on a career that's not the career that best suits you as an individual because you haven't given yourself the opportunity to explore all the things. And this is what, I guess, We used to see generations back where there was a family of doctors and everyone had to be a doctor and and all of that. And you had people that were very unhappy with what they did. And the book talks a little bit about this, and it it quotes a study from Gallup that says about 80% of professionals are not engaged in their work. How sad is that? And yet it also talks about how, then we find it very difficult to get ourselves out because we've invested on something. And then there's a whole field of research around that. And this is why con artists and people that try to, like the bad people, get you because they you know, they give you things and then you feel, oh well, I'm too involved into this now to say no. So there's a whole lot of information there on why this is not about I'm so great because I move around and I don't commit to anything, but rather if you never give yourself the opportunity to sample different things, you may never truly know what your match quality is. What is the thing that makes you really tick that actually makes you want to invest time and effort into whatever it is that you're doing for work?
0: Mm. Now look, to be fair, I think this actually appeals to me. I'm just kind of like highlighting that one because I think the idea is different things like... That doesn't mean every day. It just means like every few years to switch things is okay. Like, But not to be constantly changing. You still have to commit and study and work on the thing you're doing. But then switching from that is, I guess that's kind of how I looked at it. But is that kind of what we're talking about here? Or
1: Yeah, I think so. And to be fair as well, you also don't know if you're connecting to something until you dedicate enough time. It's the hard stuff. There's a lot of reward for doing the hard yards. And that's when I talk to students particularly because I work in STEM you know people with the f- afraid of maths and all of that stuff there's a learning curve and once you go through a bit of the pain then the reward is great so you have to endure a bit of the pain and if there's no pain typically you're not pushing yourself so that's something that helps people you know if it's too easy then you're not growing you're not learning but once you go through that then you can have an evaluation and say well am I actually enjoying this is this something that I'm interested on is this something that connects with who I am and, and what I want to do.
0: Yeah, no, look, I'm a firm believer in that part just because I know how much, like it's almost at every level, like habit forming stuff. And just, you don't know if you like something until you've kind of at least made it part a bit normal for you. Otherwise you don't even know. Like yes. You just you just don't even know the habit. Like it's all weird at the start. So you just kind of have no frame of reference until you've done it for a while to at least understand it now. Exactly. I mean, yeah, A while is not like 10 years, but it's like, yeah, six months, a year, two years maybe. But yeah, because I was thinking of when you talk about, the grit as well, because of your, like, yeah, it's about having perseverance because your career in STEM, that's something which requires a lot of what people would consider pain points with the math and all that stuff involved in it.
1: Yeah, exactly. Look, and particularly when we don't have a lot of women in engineering and I did my my degree in Spain and then I worked all across Europe. I came to Australia. I did it at the time where I think we were four in my class but it grew it grew a lot and i think the numbers there are quite promising long story short you do have to stick with it and there's a lot of technical subjects and there's a it's an environment that is not often a friendly environment in the sense that the culture around it you feel like you really have to be wanting to do it and do the hours but then it's been extremely rewarding. So again, this book is interesting because it's a bit the opposite, but, but it's not because it's about getting to the point where you can go into enough depth that you understand a subject and then you can say, okay, well, I'm actually interested on in this or I actually want to apply this to something else. And I think in my case, it's interesting, right? Because I did telecommunications engineering. When I finished, I went to Vienna to finish my master's there. So I went from Barcelona to Vienna, amazing experience. And I was working in mobile networks. So I was sort of doing research on audiovisual transmissions and, and error detection and correction on mobile networks, which is quite niche. And I got the opportunity to do a PhD and I didn't want to do it because I realized that I didn't want to spend three years focusing on that because I wanted to do other things. And funny enough, there was this program that I learned through a friend at the European Space Agency, a graduate program. And look, I wasn't so interested in space at the time, but I thought, well, this looks interesting. I get to go to the Netherlands. There'll be another bunch of people my same age if I get it. It sounds great, and I was—I remember growing through all the different opportunities, and you could only apply for one, right? And there were all of these cool things about, you know, like space flight dynamics and things. And I thought, oh, this would be great, but I knew I wasn't going to get it if I didn't apply for that. So I applied for what I knew, which was not what was the most exciting to me because I was ready to learn new things. And then, thankfully, I got it, and I got to move to the Netherlands to start this program. And surprise, surprise, it was in the telecommunications directorate, but it was on applications of space. So all of a sudden, these gates were open and I started to work on things like telemedicine and forestry applications how do we use data from satellites to help growers understand how their forests are growing and and predict and and you know manage those forests more efficiently and maritime safety and aviation and so it was almost like this much quality that I was talking about just happened and really serendipity because I didn't know that that was where I was going so yeah super interesting
0: yeah so I guess there's so much that's really interesting to me because I guess, firstly, I'm going to be making some guesses here, but I feel like the use of satellites in such wide-ranging areas is relatively recent, like as in 10, 15 years where it's become so everywhere. Is that right? Or has it been longer than that? Like, it just feels like now everything's satellite.
1: <laughs> yeah, look, it's interesting, right? Because, and this is what I always try to say, that space is so misunderstood. There's there's so many facets of it, Right. I think when I, before I was in it, in the sector, I think about space as the majority of the people said, which is really cool, right? SpaceX and rockets and Mars, and we're going to the moon and the astronauts and all of that, and looking for exoplanets, astronomy, all of that. It's extremely exciting, but there's just a bit, right? We have a lot of the work that we do in space is with satellites that look down on Earth, and that's been going for a long time. Three areas, and the first one, the biggest one, the commercial one, is the telecommunications one, and it started when, when, with the military, but also when people wanted to have satellite TV. So you live somewhere, you can't access the channels, and so you put a satellite in space and send that signal from one place to another, and all of a sudden you can watch those channels wherever you are, right? But then we've got Earth observation from satellite, which are these extremely sophisticated cameras that we put up in space that are taking pictures of Earth in satellites that are in the same position, so they're called geostationary ones, or satellites that are orbiting the Earth in low Earth orbit, look sunsynchronous, looking always at the same place at the same time so we can get that data and then extract information from it. And things like the weather, right? So the weather prediction models that we use, they, in Australia, about 80% of that data comes from satellites. So when you're looking at the weather, remember that all of that information is coming from satellites looking down. The applications that I mentioned, applying that kind of information to, to a range of sectors and applications, as I said, is relatively new, but it's starting to grow. And this is the new, I guess, opportunity for launching satellites that we not only do it for the science which was i guess particularly we look at earth observation from satellite you're typically pushing the envelope of science and you had to do that because it takes you a long time to go from the idea to the development to putting something up so if you're not going to go and push the envelope when it comes to science then you're probably going to spend a lot of money putting something up that's obsolete by the time that you do that right but then we've got these amazing pictures that we can use for a number of things. And you start to sort of put it out there to the community, put it out there to make them free with programs such as the Landsat program in the US or the Copernicus program in Europe. And here in Australia, we've, um, we've got great agreements with those countries and we've been able to benefit from that data. And then people can start to play and they can start to say, well, I've got this information here, what can I see? And then we go into a whole other discipline of, It's not just a pretty picture because you're taking pictures across a range of wavelengths, so you can actually start to see things like, what's the health of my crop from the kind of color that you're seeing? You can start to see things like, what's the quality of the water from this image? So, it's not just a the picture. There's a lot in it, and the opportunities are endless. And it's a great time for us for Australia in that regard, with the new space agency that was formed in 2018. And they've just released an Earth observation roadmap where they're going to be launching up a, a bunch of satellites that are going to look at all of these things. So super exciting.
0: Yeah, that's very cool. Like I guess people don't often associate Australia with much to do with space. Obviously, just as a country, we're relatively small. Is that something that's happening soon-ish? Like, as in what's the kind of plan on that? Because that's something I'm not really across much at all, Australia's forward to it.
1: Yeah, it's happening right now as we speak and there's a lot <laughs> of people working on it very, very hard. So the Space Agency was formed in 2018 and, and we've got a history in space. There was a period where we were quite active and, in fact, we've had a number of ground stations that are tracking satellites and even when you know when we landed in the moon because of our position. In the world, right, we're very well positioned to be able to connect with the satellites that are orbiting around the Earth from other nations. But when it comes to to our own program, we're just starting. And when the agency was formed in 2018, they started to look at, well, what are the things that we could do in space? And one of the areas where we're experts traditionally has been using data from earth observation from other countries and applying it to a number of areas like some like the ones that I mentioned before agriculture is always one that gets mentioned but obviously the weather and others that are coming up we've also been using data actively for example to monitor bushfires that have occurred in 2019 for example and I was involved with the uh, putting together a project to, to try and improve that and how we use that data across a number of sources to be able to detect fires a lot faster than they occur. But to your point, yes. So everyone is really excited because there had just been an announcement a few months back that uh, we are going to invest, uh, the federal government is investing 1.2 billion in a civilian earth observation program. And there's great ambitions to launch four satellites in the next four years. So our very own and it's a very neat proposal that they've put together that's very complementary to what uh, the other countries and nations that we've got agreements and collaboration with are doing so a lot happening and very very exciting
0: that is very exciting yeah because i'm guessing government funding or public funding is probably a big need with something like space research because commercialization is only extremely recent and still being worked out so it all does come down to government funding for this sort of thing right?
1: Yeah that's right look and I think industry is booming so that is a change when you look at where we're at now compared to the more traditional space so there's a lot of private investment venture capital investment going into space here and globally but at the end of the day if you look at companies like SpaceX and others that everyone sort of looks as reference the seed of it all it's been government and it's helping get you up that what they call technology readiness level make sure that you can develop your technology and know that it works that you can launch it that you can get flight heritage so that you can prove that you're serious in space that you know what you're doing and then yeah from there you can grow so this announcement has been great and yeah everyone's quite excited
0: nice now i guess this is something which i think Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I can go two different angles with, so I'm interested in it. One is, so with the book range, I guess it's talking about how people have different experience and that's useful, like a generalist versus specialist. I'm wondering if that refers also to, okay, so let's go with actually the more obvious one. So you mentioned before how once you open this up to a whole bunch of other people around the world, showing them these images, all of a sudden- the like, potential was limitless because you had all these different people looking at this stuff and coming up with new ideas. Is that something that comes across, I mentioned in the book, the idea of having multiple viewpoints on something to be able to get more from it? Is that something that's kind of covered or is that outside that scope?
1: Yeah, it comes across almost in every chapter, I'd say, in different, right. for, different <laughs> yeah. forms and shapes. So the importance of diverse teams and having people with different backgrounds particularly to tackle what the book calls or what it's called wicked problems which are problems that are complex that are how would you say that that are not straightforward there's a lot of uncertainty associated with and the importance of having different views so that you can be a lot more creative with your solutions and you can sort of Yeah, tackle those problems faster and getting ideas that maybe when you're very entrenched in a domain, you're not even thinking about because you're too focused on your process, you're too focused on the method. When it comes to Earth observation data, for example, there is still a learning curve to be able to do some of these things, but that shouldn't be an issue. And I guess going to your point on this, there's a great example in the book, and this is for space aficionados out there. Um, there's actually a couple of examples where the book talks about NASA and everyone you know gets very excited when <laughs> NASA is mentioned. But there's two, and one of them just spot on on what you asked. So NASA had had a problem that they had been working on for about 30 years and they weren't able to crack it. And it got to the point where someone had the idea to open this up to the community. And I think some of the um, researchers were a bit sceptical and the book the book sort of unpacks this, this example. And they put it out and they got an answer within six months from someone that was not an NASA employee, someone that, yes, had some knowledge, but was able to sort of look at the problem through different lenses so how incredible is this right in Mm. fact there's a company now and the book talks about it that does that so you know organizations can go to them with a problem that they haven't been able to crack they find a way to put it out so that if it's got confidentiality associated to it in whichever form you try and shape it sort of remove those layers and they put it out for the community to solve so And the community solves them. And so I think it's wonderful when you see that kind of thinking because what it does is that it demystifies a field like space, which a lot of people are very afraid of because they're, oh no, I need to be, you know, you need to be a rocket scientist. This is really difficult. Well, no, and we need people from all sorts of disciplines. And the thing with space as well is, you know, and, and with engineering and with STEM, I think we're used to seeing the same type of stereotype of person that's a nerd or that, I mean, nothing wrong with that, but, you know, that they're just working by themselves. That's the only thing they like. That's the only thing they care about. But there's this range of people working on it. And when you Look at something like space or technology and the rate at which things are evolving. You have things like ethics. You have things like law. You have things like design. So you're not just working on the tools. You know, it goes from an idea and how you develop that idea into something. You need creative people. You need people that can think outside the box. You need problem solvers. You need people that look at risk, you know, people that are very good with finance because, you know, things cost money. So how are you going to make the case? So it's just really good to put that out so that we demystify what this sector is about and people can say, look, you know, I can actually do this. I can do this bit. I don't need to know everything, but I can do this bit and I can transfer what I know from this domain into this other domain.
0: Mm. No, I think that's very true. And like, yeah, people get scared off by it a bit, but, uh, they can find the skill set. And I guess similar to that, but maybe a bit different, this kind of can be a question about wider STEM rather than just space. But we're talking about like the community being able to offer its answers to stuff in ways which people will not realize. But I guess uh, hand in hand with that, you could talk about diversity of like backgrounds and stuff. So you mentioned before being a woman in STEM and what that was like a little bit at the start. So I guess, is that something which has changed over time? I assume it has actually, that's a silly question almost, but this is an ongoing debate forever because everyone's always talking about it. And the, the one I struggle to think of is that people get upset about things like quotas and stuff like that. And when it comes to people entering into fields and I have like, I, pretty sure I get it but how about you talk to that idea like idea that people some people are like our oh, quotas it's not needed anymore or it doesn't help anyway you should just pick the best person however you measure that I don't know but anyways uh, to get in so do you have some opinions about that when it comes to STEM, or specifically space or your own experiences
1: yeah look I actually do and I've I've seen it firsthand myself when I started at ESA and I don't know if that's the case at the moment I presume it still is ESA had quota system so they would favour women to be higher against men because of the low representation of women in the organisation. You can look at it in different ways and I certainly, and I think this is a growth and maturity thing to me and I was perhaps a few years back I'd say I don't want to feed a quota because I want to be judged on my own merits and I don't want anyone to say that you know I've been picked because I'm a woman. And that is true and no woman wants that. So there's an argument on that. There is also another argument that if you don't make it explicit, I mean, I'm talking gender here, right? You could open this up to a range of other areas and you could talk about breadth of discipline, for example, and how some recruitment, when people recruit, they are so specific that they really target maybe sometimes I look at this recruitment, sometimes I look at the job arts and I think there's no way there's one person that I know that can fit this. There's no way. You're not going to find this person. But going back to this, to the quotas and to women and to gender, there's studies and there's a, this very famous number that you know men would go for a job when they fit 60% of the criteria, whereas women will only go for a job if they fit 100, right? So you're already cutting out a big range of the population here. And that's the way it is. And so and so that's, that's what actually happens. When you have quotas, to me, what you're actually saying, if you're doing a proper selection process is we are encouraging you to apply because we're going to look really, really hard until we have the right candidate. So I think that gives you the permission to put yourself forward when sometimes perhaps you wouldn't because you look at the requirements and think, gosh, I don't know that I have all of these but they're telling you, well, we actually want women, so apply, and then we will decide whether you are fitted or not. And going to the other point, it's not just about you know a particular skill. That you, particularly nowadays, we're looking, again, and this is why the book is so relevant, you're looking for a range of skill sets that are not just what you learn at uni. You want people that are able to think critically. You want people that can understand and deal with other people. You want all of these different attributes that are what traditionally was called soft skills that you can't measure on a university degree or a range of other things. So to your point on quotas, I think they've been very, very useful in a number of domains, particularly to break that barrier of entry. And if people are scared, you can break you can do that and then you can do blind selection, for example, where if you if you can send that there's people are gonna be that women are gonna be favored you can then strip the names and just judge based on what you've got there. You get, you get a group of evaluators to look at that and see if you can send that it's not going to be fair or that you're going to have positive bias. But yeah, there is work that's been done, but not yet enough.
0: Yeah, and I guess too uh, similar to that point, kind of. So that's the selection side of things. But do you think the benefits, apart from trying to be fair, you know, which is fair enough on its own, but do you think the benefits are wider than that as well? Like just in terms of getting different people in there who have these different backgrounds, do you think that actually benefits the discipline as a whole anyway, regardless of the idea of fairness and making sure you get these people in? Yeah. Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Because the worst thing that can happen to an organization, if you want innovation, is to get group thinking. And you're going to have group thinking when you have people that look the same, act the same, and see life the same way. Through gender, you're naturally going to have a variety of personalities and what have you, but there's already different approaches. And then, again, in terms of discipline, the book talks about this, right, how the best environment is one where you've got structure but you also have incongruence whereby people are ready to have conflict because that means that you're going to dig deeper into things, you're going to question harder the decisions that you make, and you're just going to be making better decisions. So that's, when, that's why diversity is so important because if everyone – when we all know the same and think the same, then, well, you may as well don't do anything because everything is great, right? We're we're the best uh, until you get disrupted and then it's mm-hmm. not anymore.
0: Yeah, and, uh, and like like you said, it it can be what you've seen before about the criteria. It sometimes could be just as simple as the fact that they only pick sometimes from like two universities and that's it for like some institutions. And it's like, you can just get so much more if you just spread the net wider. But in that note, I think one of the things people get confused about is the idea that it, no matter how good your self-assessment is, even as a group, you're like, we all ask questions we all ask each other, we're constantly assessing ourselves like a blind spot is not something you can see. <laughs> so if all of you have the same blind spot, you just, just can't see it. So no matter how good you think you are at yeah, questioning everything. and this is
1: reminding me of another great example in the book, another space example for the fans out there. It's There's almost a whole chapter on the Challenger disaster and why it happened and an analysis and a discussion on the thinking process and decision-making that went into there. And yes, looking at blind spots and how in this particular case, which I thought was extremely revealing, an overemphasis on data cost issues. And so that's, that's so counterintuitive. That's so counterintuitive to the way, I guess, science and engineering and, and we all go, well, show me where the data is. And in this particular case, the data points weren't there, and because the data points were in there, they didn't use common sense. They didn't look at things that they could have looked at if they had been more open to improvise and to listen and to go deeper. So super interesting as well for people that want to have a deep dive in that.
0: It's such a pitch for the book. I like it a lot. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I know, they should pay- I've been talking to everyone about this book I'm not getting paid by this But um, truly, I think one of the things that I really liked about the book Is the examples that Epstein is using Because I found myself reading a story And for instance, he has a couple of examples Where he's talking about a famous person And you know he's a famous person because of the way he is describing it but he's not telling you the name until the end (laughs) and you're going through and who is this person that has on all of these things and then at the end he reveals it and it is truly enjoyable to read it's not a light read it's dense but it's uh, rewarding Mm. yeah
0: just out of curiosity as well because i know you read this relatively recently but do you read across kind of all Sections? I think you mentioned uh, to me before the show that, uh, yeah, when we were talking. Yeah,
1: I read across. Yeah, I think I do. I've got range when I read. (laughs) Oh, how annoying. Um, (laughs) It's great.
0: You're terrible.
1: Oh, God. Yeah, look, I do. I love fantasy. And I was listening to some of your episodes before, and there's a couple of books now that I need to read. And I was thinking, because I've been working in the spatial sector in Australia for the last few years since I arrived and the spatial sector is all about location so understanding where things are what happens where so also connected to space by the way because you get positioning you get location from satellites as well and that's where you get very very precise location of where things are and then we use it every day but what I thought was interesting I was thinking about this today is that I hadn't thought about for a while how I love books with maps (laughs) when particularly when you're reading like epic fiction and then you find yourself going but I find myself going back and forth like and then they describe this region and it's surrounded by these mountains and I'm like where the hell is this and you have to sort of go back to the beginning and pull the crappy map and go figure out where the character is and how he's going through it and how did they go from here to here in a chapter how did they do that time travel I just thought I'd I'd talk about that because I don't know if, if other listeners enjoy that but I find myself looking at those maps a lot when I'm reading a fiction.
0: You big, big nerd. That is amazing. You have tie it in with your entire job there as well. Just like what's the fidelity on this satellite looking at this? Yeah.
1: yeah. There's a lot of people. Yeah, look, maybe it is a bit nerdy, but yeah. It's cool. You actually can see where the action is happening and sort of work out for yourself. if it, it makes sense or or it doesn't
0: yeah no look that's fair and i think this might be not something directly related to the stuff but like i think the impact of geography on everything i think sometimes doesn't get appreciated by people like just how much it matters where the mountain is and where the river is and where the ocean like those things a lot of people i think can sometimes kind of appreciate but not fully understand just how fundamental it is to everything yeah exactly
1: and you know you go to to Books that have become mainstream, obviously, through movies like The Lord of the Rings and some of the decisions they make to go a certain way or another is because, well, we've got this range of mountains and it's going to take weeks, so we need to go through the cave. And then you sort of find yourself, okay, where is the cave and how are they going to make the shortcut? So, uh, yeah, absolutely. And, well, decisions that we've actually have had to make or that not me, but people in the past had to make when they were exploring continents like here, where to land, where to moor your ship, what's safe, what's not safe, what's going to take you somewhere faster. I mean, this is how America was discovered, right? You're trying to go to to India faster and then go around the world and hit a new continent
0: be one of the biggest mistakes in the history of the world I've got to be honest <laughs> you could not miss more yeah you got to India but you're actually just on an island off of America <laughs> very much <laughs> yeah. okay yeah and actually to go back a step as well to the range stuff you did mention you've been to whole you've had like four different countries that you've called home at different points is that right yeah four is that am I getting the number right
1: yeah so I was born in spain in barcelona i lived there most of my life went to vienna for my masters that's in austria went to the netherlands to work at the space agency and came to australia to melbourne to live with my now family and kids (laughs) so yeah all over the world
0: that's amazing so i guess did you like that means you've probably experienced the idea of how different different cultures can be as well, like when you're living in them and all that sort of thing?
1: Yes, absolutely. And yeah, I have. And it's interesting. I think it it gives you also an appreciation for how people think and behave and how important it is to, I think, observe and listen and understand the nuances of, of where you are and how people think and work. And as someone that comes from another place things are obvious to me sometimes it's challenging because there's so many customs and things women through culture that people in a country are not aware of and when you come as a foreigner when you come as someone from somewhere else, you're picking them up. But sometimes it's so small that people themselves, you know, like those blind spots that you were talking about before, right? Ways in which people communicate. And that's also very much connected to language. I've Obviously, my main language is Spanish, but I've worked and spoken English for a very long time. And that's been my work language. But I I had to learn German when I was in Vienna. I learned a little bit of Dutch. I speak Catalan as well. And when you go into the language you actually realize how our thinking is so related to the way in which language is structured to the point where there are words that i find very difficult not to say in spanish because i know them in english and there's no substitute and the other way around and and there's a whole lot of body of work when you sort of translate that for instance into the realm of emotions how each language Depicts things differently, how there are languages that don't have words for certain emotions. So, a bit of an off track, but super important when it comes to work, when it comes to dealing with people and innovating and working as groups, because a lot of it is about understanding each other and a lot of it is about coming to agreement or disagreement, and language is the vehicle for that.
0: Mm. No, that's fair. I mean, and there could be benefits to being able to step outside it and have a different viewpoint there, possibly to understand people's emotions in a way that other people can't. I mean, it's hard to describe an emotion if you don't have the word for it.
1: <laughs> it is. And that's, there's a whole, well, this, this is another episode of books, but I know Brene Brown has a new book called The Atlas of Emotions. And I think it's, it's going to be one that's going to be in my list where she's actually gone on to this journey to map I don't know how many different emotions and how an emotion stems from another. And she said, she said, this is the first book I'm not going to translate because it's not going to be right if I translate it to another language because of the connotations that language have on the description of an emotion. So super interesting as well
0: yeah that's uh true and I guess uh, cause my background's Greek so I feel like Greeks and the Spanish maybe we've got some similarities in some ways as well
1: yeah very passionate
0: <laughs> <laughs> also did you have the like uh, so I've been back to Greece a whole bunch of times did you grow up with the siesto
1: I grew up with the siesta only on holidays, and this is another of these myths where, oh, you Spanish people, you don't work, but it's not true. When you're working, you're working, but yes, when you're not working... If you can have a nap with the afternoon, it's quite nice, uh, particularly when it's so hot in summer.
0: Because I, I, in Greece, they still do it. So like the work finishes, you go home, you can have a nap a lot of the time. So other people still do that. Some
1: people do it in Spain, but the majority of the shops, and I guess people have caught up with the times and they don't. But I must say on one of my trips back home, I landed around, when was, like around 2 p.m. And then I was going home with my dad and I was looking around going, what's going on? Why are the shops closed? And then it clicked. Oh yeah. Shops close at two and they open at five.
0: <laughs> it's the best. Oh man. I'm a huge fan. I personally, <laughs> who does anything in the afternoon? You're sleepy anyway. Might as well relax, have a nice meal with your family, whatever. And then I'm a big believer. I think it's, I think we got it wrong.
1: <laughs> yeah. Look, it's a, it's a good lifestyle. It's a good, slower lifestyle.
0: Yeah, and but it does make sense when you're it's you're living by the Mediterranean. It's nice. Yes. <laughs> like, okay, I think that's kind of covered everything. So yeah, thank you so much for being on the show. That was really great. Is there anything anywhere anyone you would want anyone to go follow you or follow anything you do?
1: Yeah. Well, look, I guess the only place that I'm really sort of public and out there is linkedin it's a professional network and some people often add me i'm a bit funny when it comes to adding people because i usually want to connect with people that i know but hmm. if you want to connect with me and you've listened to this podcast just yeah just connect and write something and i'll write back I post a fair bit about work there, some of the things that that I like around space, around diversity and inclusion, around STEM, the work that I'm doing with the superstars of STEM. I'm looking at going to schools to talk about everything that I do. So if you're interested on any of that, yeah, feel free to connect. Great. Okay. Thanks a lot, Eva. Thank you so much. Thanks for
0: being on the show. Nice. Cheers. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for listening. If you want to help support this show and all the other shows we do here at SansPants Radio, then why not subscribe to sanspantsplus.com. For as little as $5 a month, you could have access to a whole bunch of bonus shows and content. Once again, that's sanspantsplus.com.